Welcome to The Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance and HR to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Thank you so much for coming on The Ethics Experts. I've been excited to talk to you because uh, you're kind of on the front lines of this thing, and I think you can have some uh, really good insights for us. I appreciate the opportunity. So why don't we just jump in? You want to tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us kind of what you do? Sure, sure, sure. Uh, I'm a compliance executive, so let me start off with uh, you know typical compliance fashion, and uh, with the disclaim with the disclaimer <laughs> that any opinions I express during the, our discussion are my own and not representative of my organization or any associations which I belong to or am affiliated so and are employed by. So with that, um, so I am a, a comp corporate compliance and internal audit executive, assistant vice president for a uh, top-rated health system. Uh, in the country, and so I have responsibility over compliance, audit, and enterprise risk oversight. Um, and so what that means, kind of a bigger picture overview, um, a lot of organizations, because uh, you may have a lot of uh, folks listening that are part of different types of industries. So in the healthcare industry, it is common for compliance and audit to um, maybe have some kind of a partnership, um, because a lot of the audits that we do are compliance related. So here we have a case where you know both of those what I would consider unique, you know, professions um, roll up to me. So uh, in this uh, kind of uh, structure that we have, so that means that I'm responsible for the corporate compliance program. So which would be people that are involved in compliance would know the seven elements of a compliance program. So I'm uh, overseeing that. Then we have an annual audit plan. So I oversee that to see what uh, we're going to be auditing for the year and also an annual enterprise risk assessment, and which is updated quarterly. And all of this information, anything that we do too, is reported to the board. Uh, so we have audit committee meetings, corporate compliance committee meetings, things of that nature. Um, the other kind of uh, insight I have into things is that as part of our oversight, we oversee our HIPAA privacy and HIPAA security functions, our environmental health and safety, which is like um, our public safety, uh, environmental health and safety, those kinds of things for, for the organization facilities. So there are people that are resp responsible for that, but they report up through the compliance committee. Our cybersecurity, which is data security, PCI compliance, things of that nature. And then in addition to all of that, I'm also on our emergency preparedness committee and I'm FEMA certified as part of being on that committee, which is, you know, very uh, typical for kind of a hospital health system. So kind of in summary, it's a lot of information, but in summary, I've got a pretty good bird's eye view of, of the enterprise from, you know, from where I am. Yeah. And philosophically, you know, some organizations, they don't organize it the way that you described it. And so I'm sure you maybe have had experience with those other organizations that, are, that maybe divide some of these functions into more sort of silos. Can you speak to sort of some of the philosophy behind the way you guys organize it um, and some of the benefits and maybe downsides to the way it's organized or kind of why, why you landed there. You know what I mean? Sure, sure, sure. So, you know, we're a nonprofit hospital system. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I think I've seen is, uh, cause I've worked in every industry um, and been involved either, either as a chief audit executive or as an executive consultant to the C-level. So, you know, typically you see in, you know, an audit department, separate audit department, separate chief audit executive, um, if there is a compliance department, so let's say it's a pharmaceutical company or something else, they're usually separate. Um, so what I like about this, I think part of this ar arose, uh, the structure, I wasn't, 
I wasn't uh, part of the, you know, kind of deciding on the structure for the organization. It was there before I came in. But the fact that since it is healthcare and really the highest risks um, from a compliance standpoint come from uh, ensuring that we're following, you know, the laws and regulations, the auditing of it really was compliance related was the most, um, I guess, the highest risk area. Uh, that the organization decided on that we needed for the, these audit plans when they started out were very compliance heavily oriented versus let's say if you're you know an SEC Fortune 500 company and your internal audit um, you're looking at socks and financial controls and, and controls over financial reporting so so that's you know that's where I think the difference is the benefit of having compliance risk and audit kind of under this umbrella is that you can use the same risk dictionary and risk universe to kind of do the work, which I think is helpful because many organizations where they have the audit and compliance and risk areas separated and siloed, it's interesting how you can see how they define, maybe define risks differently, define, you know, not only define them, but also rate them differently. Right. So at least we're all working from the same playbook. So I think that's kind of interesting, but at the same time, on the on the negative side is, or something you have to be aware of is to balance and put that kind of wall up between the different functions because they all have uh, a separate type of mission that they're trying to achieve. Audit has to be independent and objective. Compliance is kind of this forward-looking function. Risk is looking at risk mitigation and is involved in our insurance practices and, and those kinds of things. So there is a different mission for each one of those functionalities. And so you have to be aware of that if you're going to kind of group them together. I think that's a great point. There, you know, you want to have that harmony so you get some more efficiency from these functions as they interact with each other, which is what you can achieve when they're all underneath that umbrella. But to your point, there needs to still be that positive tension. You know, a great example is that audit, which you just said, because that audit needs to make sure on an independent basis that the policies are being adhered to and the samples are, you know, not biased and, and we're not introducing sort of moral hazard into the process itself by the way that it's organized. That's correct because our team, uh, and I have several teams that report up to me, but we have a coding team, we have a, a true and more internal audit team, and they focus on operational, financial, uh, information technology, and compliance type audits. So what's important is that we don't have a, a massive team of different individuals, that they're smaller teams. So we're used for two different purposes. One is that compliance type advisory, how, you know, how do I comply with this? Or, or how, you know, can you interpret this regulation for me? And then we're also using that same team to do auditing. So you have to watch that fine line where you're providing maybe advisory services, but not getting too much into the operational aspects of it so that um, we can make sure that we can audit to see how effectively that was done. Very interesting. So you like this setup better if you went to a new, uh, you know, a new organization or if you were, if you were spinning one up yourself and you were able to kind of architect, you know, uh, how these functions would sort of interact and how they, they would be organized. Would you kind of carry this structure forward or would there be tweaks to it that you'd, you know, implement? Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because, um, you know, I thought that it was, I have not seen this. I've been in, like I said, I've been in every industry right. um, up and down the chain. And so I've not seen this set up anywhere else. Uh, and, and one thing I will say is in my viewpoint of that, that I do think that there is 
uh, has been a challenge in a lot of these organizations of aligning that risk universe and those risk definitions between these functions. And uh, that, you know, that, that's, that is really a benefit of having these aligned together. Now, whether they all need to report under the same umbrella necessarily, I think if organizations strive to ensure that these areas are kind of communicating with each other and agreeing to or, or communicating and sharing what they believe are the highest risks so they can uh, prepare each one of them in their own way. So if compliance has uh, their high risk, you know, kind of categorization of things, is the audit department, if they're separate, uh, completely separate and segregated, are they, are they taking a look at that and addressing that it's part of their audit plan? And then in the enterprise risk area, which involves our insurance, you know, that's really important to know how effectively um, the organization is mitigating some of these risk, risks so we can report that to our insurance carriers as part of the information we submit to them. Uh, when we do our annual insurance filing. So I think there's um, really a benefit to good communication. I'm not sure I, I would say at this point, I'm an advocate of, okay, that should all be under one umbrella or to report to one person. But um, I definitely think I've seen an opportunity for a lot of these organizations and a lot of large ones, a lot of the big ones. I've worked for some of the Fortune 500 organizations to implement a better communication amongst these groups. Yeah, and I think what we're talking about on one level is sort of a de-siloing, which is inevitably where an organization lands, maybe not inevitably, but many times they land there, just as it grows and it gets more complex and you have to sort of divide and conquer, that siloing can occur and it ends up you know, removing the holistic nature of sort of risk management, which is what all these functions are. At the, at the end of the day, it's what they're doing, right? It's, we're trying to minimize risk. We're trying to make sure that we're reducing risk for the organization and we're, you know, that that we're stewards of. Um, but I just think that this, this holistic approach is very interesting. And I just wonder over the next decade, if we see more, more organizations sort of swing towards this as they see that interdependency and see that sort of synergy between these, you know, in other places, like you said, these siloed functions kind of start to come together. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Nick. I, you know, I don't know. I, I could say that, you know, I've, I've been a a student of this, uh, you know, some people call me an expert, but I'm a, I consider myself a, a constant student of this and trying to learn and figure out better ways of doing things because there's a lot of opinion out there, as you can see on, you know, what is the right way to do risk management? Right. What is the model for it? And the three lines of defense, you know, uh, you know, that we've got set up where management is that first line and compliance is the second line and audit is the third line. And should they be communicating and integrated or are they separate parties and siloed? And, you know, and so there's a lot, you know, to all of those things and everybody has kind of their opinion on where it may work. But here's, I think, the bottom line is you have to be astute enough to know what works for your organization. That there, I don't think there really is a blueprint for everybody. I think there are some guidelines, but you need to be able to pivot and to know what's going to work for your organization and take into account the culture and, and you know, what, what do they believe in and what is senior leadership kind of communicating is important to them. All of those things need to be taken into account. That's a great transition to the next uh, question that I had, which is, you know, you've worked in different industries, you've worked in different size organizations, and we see this thing, and this is kind of a caricature or a stereotype, which I'm going to kind of sketch out right here, which is compliance is a cost center, ethics is a cost center, um, HR is a check the box function, you know, we need to have it. How have you seen 
how these functions or how the functions that you're kind of over at large um, be viewed? And is there a correlation with organization size, um, industry, or, you know, just sort of culture or view at the top? Like, what is the strong force there in terms of how these functions are viewed and, you know, the extent to which they're unleashed to work their magic? Yeah, unfortunately, I think I'll, I'll make a generalized statement, you know, across uh, what I've seen in my 30 years of doing this, right, is that the compliance and audit functions are usually driven by a regulatory oversight need. Uh, so let's say, for, for example, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley. So, you know, there may not have been a big, uh, you know, even in some organizations I was in, there wasn't a big, let's say, um, favoritism toward maybe having, uh, you know, maybe a large or, or in-depth compliance department, but then you come out with these regulations or these needs that then require you to staff up and you have to meet these things. You have to report these things. So I think if we see some more elaborate or more specific uh, compliance and internal audit plans uh, based on how regulated that industry is. And because I'll be, I'll be, I'll be honest in, in every industry at some point, especially when there are crises and downturns, sometimes it's kind of like, well, audit is kind of, backward looking, right? So is that really an important function right now at the moment? You right. know, um, and so so getting to that cost center mentality of how does this help us? So so the nice thing about this is, is you know, the way we show value, I think, in some of our function is you really have to focus on what's really important and really take into account what is the check the box function, what is really important, what's important at the moment, and prioritize the risk areas so that you're actually working side by side with the leadership on helping them make decisions rather than doing some kind of, you know, um, backward looking review where, hey, we could have done that better before. And that's, that's the benefit of having compliance and audit together. The way I can see it is, I see it as the better we maybe do compliance on our end, being forward looking and helping implement, um, you know, solutions to help us mitigate risk the less we're hopefully going to be seeing some, you know, um, recommendations and errors on the internal audit side. So, so in that case, you know, hopefully those internal audits are maybe a bit cleaner, maybe not showing material or you know, big deficiencies. So, you know, but that's also to your point, how much do people engage compliance at the outset of their initiatives and their projects? Um, are we at the table? Or do they go ahead and decide we're doing this project and at the 59th minute say, well, we should probably check with compliance before we push the button on this and roll this out tomorrow. So I've been involved in a lot of those discussions and said, whoa, you know, it uh, would have been nice to have been there at the beginning because right. guess what? You have to tear all, tear all of that down now and start over, <laughs> you know, yeah, so yeah. we've seen that happen yeah. too. And that kind of myopic approach or that sort of compliance as an afterthought approach ends up not only sort of letting more risk creep into the process. But I mean, it's easy for me to say because I'm kind of in this game, but it also ends up creating a lot of inefficiency, which ultimately is sort of bottom line compromising, you know, activities. Um, and I just wonder in your experience, you know, you've been doing this for a long time, like, like we said, across a bunch of different industries, have you ever seen the light bulb at the top go on? Or is it really just kind of, that's kind of set as it's set and the holistic type of leaders who 
understand the value of this function sort of in, inherently. They tend to bring you in before the 59th minute. And then the others, you're just always kind of swimming upstream against that, uh, that inevitable 59th minute, you know, afterthought kind of an approach. Yeah, what's interesting there, as I will say, is this. Compliance, we're all about relationships. So we are the ethical and cultural kind of monitors of the organization. So, you know, we just don't know the rules, but we're supposed to know, like, how the organization operates. Uh, you know, how, how things get done. What are the processes? What are the controls? You know, we can put out, you know, a suggestion, recommendation there, but usually it's only effective if we can give them a hand and maybe give them some advice on how to put it in place. So rather than just say, here's the rule, good luck, we can say, here's the rule, here's what we suggest you may want to focus on or do. And as you're doing that, we're happy to look at it and evaluate it. So what I think that you do and get the success in the light bulb from senior leaders, including you, is endear yourself get some wins on some of these big things that are going on and be that valuable resource, understand what's important to the organization from a strategic standpoint, um, get out of your box of your regular audit plan or your regular plan and make sure that you're getting involved in those things as well and offering, you know, advice and counsel and things like that and why you're important to be part of that process. And once you have a win like that, um, you just need it one time. Then I've seen that senior leadership, I have, I have people that are like, the first thing they say is call compliance, right. call compliance before you do anything else. So that's what you want. You want that relationship, but that is about how you manage uh, your activities and that those relationships. I, I mean, you, you touched on so much right there. And I think what you're, what I really loved about what you just said is that it's on us to really elevate out of whatever box we're in. And it's on us to be the architects of our own destiny and tied the organizations that we're in. And none of this stuff is etched in stone. None of these views of this function is really etched in stone. And to your point, it just takes one win for someone to say, oh my gosh, I really thought about this function wrong. I thought this was just a seatbelt, but this can be a spoiler on the car. And let's get these guys involved sooner. And um, so I love that. And I also loved how you said it's really all about relationships. So it's on us as compliance professionals to really get out there not only from a tactical or strategic standpoint um, in terms of like managing up, you know, within the or organization at large, but also just reaching across the aisle, so to speak, and seeing how you can be a helpful asset to the other folks in different departments that, again, have viewed compliance as the police officer that's going to be writing tickets when it can really be someone that's going to help them do their job better, help them understand where, where those lines or rules of engagement are so that, so that they can run harder. No, I think that's very well said. Um, and, you know, to your point, and I was trying to address your point, too, of, uh, you know, how we're viewed, right, as, you know, compliant, whether you're compliance or your audit, you know, the cost center versus not, you have to make yourself relevant. And I think part of the benefit I have there or advantage I have is, uh, you know, I did a lot of consulting work in my time. And so part of that consulting mentality is that you're always thinking of ways in which you can be relevant and helpful to the organization and you're not stuck in, a recurring plan that's going on year after year, you have to you have to think about it, make yourself relevant, and not wait for someone to realize that. Yeah, and we're kind of talking about this internal sales game that I think as a consultant you have to get good at. Um, whereas a lot of us who just jump right right into the uh, the straight professional game, so to speak, um, it's less uh, prioritized or something, or it's not prioritized as much. And that, you know, I think sales sometimes has, you know, maybe a dirty, you know, it feels like a dirty word, 
but really at its core, it's about persuading. And at its core, it's about seeing how I can be helpful. We're not talking about selling, you know, lemons that have a bunch of sawdust in the engine. We're talking about how someone who doesn't consider me as helpful can have their life be made easier by my, by my input as a com compliance professional. And I think it's a little switch that we can flip in our brains that can really start to multiply our impact and ultimately elevate the entire function. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, to, to very good, very good points. And I think to, uh, to kind of put it into a question is um, that anyone can ask themselves is how are you making yourself relevant to the organization? If you feel you're, you're being looked at as a cost center, why is that? And how can you make yourself relevant? Then? I love that. It's such like a powerful question. Simple. You know, you boil down, <laughs> you boil down all those words I said to a very simple question that captures the whole essence of it. And it can really be the root of a new mentality that we bring to the organizations that we're in to, again, break, break free of those sort of check the box chains or the pigeonhole that, you know, we're jammed in. Yes. So switching into, you know, this, this crisis, I was excited to get you on here because of the industry you're in. Um, you know, this COVID-19 um, edition, we're just ripping these episodes out as we talk to thought leaders like you, because we're just trying to push out as much value to um, our listeners as we can to give them some techniques and some insights that might make their impact more magnified and the diff, you know, kind of uh, elevate them in their fight on, in their organization. It's kind of an unprecedented time. You know, the, uh, the unemployment claims have skyrocketed to un unbelievable astronomical levels that we haven't seen in, you know, recent history, if ever. And within your organization, I'd love to hear kind of what you're seeing. Again, you don't have to get specific, um, but what kind of things are, are you seeing from a compliance perspective? Where are you seeing pockets for uh, where you, you and your, your team can really sort of stand out? And I'd also like to kind of talk about where are you having to make sort of tough decisions about prioritization as the workplace is changing, as standards need to be sort of uh, more flexible and things like that. Yeah, there's a lot that we're seeing. So, I mean, I think that, you know, being having that experience in compliance, I think has been helpful, you know, in this, in this crisis a bit, because like I said, you know, compliance uh, is, is, is about a what and a how. So what is, what are, what are risks? What are the compliance risks? So we're a forward-looking activity. You know, we're tr always trying to look at things from the highest risk perspective. So even, you know, from a compliance program standpoint, we look at the DOJ guidelines, right? So Department of Justice says, focus on highest risks. That's what we want to see in compliance programs. So, so that requires a continual risk assessment, right, that we're doing. Um, so we're always trying to be, you know, we're always trying to be proactive in identifying and prioritizing risk for the organization. And we need to have that back and forth channel to discuss things with management. So, so that's how compliance is helping in this crisis. And the how is about how do we do it? So how do we put something in place? How do we advise for the organization to put something in place to mitigate risk uh, and do those things? So that's, you know, that those are kind of some of the uh, benefits of being in this you know, kind of uh, profession is we're, we're doing that all the time. You know, by nature, we're always working in an environment of continual risk and change and compliance. Right. It's always continual. So, but this is an unprecedented crisis, as you said. So what do you do in something like this? You try to plan, you try to adjust, you try to do things. So how has it impacted our organization? Well, it's impacted our organization very much the same way it's impacted a lot of organizations. So the interesting thing about a pandemic like this 
versus let's say a cybersecurity event because wow how many cybersecurity webinars and things have been going on for the you know for longest time now is the biggest risk is the number one risk in the the polls of all the CEOs and that's the number one risk to organization right. well that takes down your that takes down your technology a pandemic is a huge impact on your labor force on your people so when we talk about people process technology so we're seeing that impact here you know of the impact on people um, so who are we? We're, we're a hospital health system. So who's included that? Who's in that system? Physicians um, and all types of other clinicians and nurses and assistants and so on, technicians and things and so forth. And then, of course, there's a corporate administrative, you know, sector uh, portion of that organization. And so we're all affected. And when it comes to an organization like this, it's kind of an all hands on deck, you know, uh, situation where we have to pivot in different roles and different things. It doesn't mean that non-clinical people are going to be taking clinical positions all of a sudden, um, but it does mean that we may be asked to do things that we haven't done, you know, that are in our box if it gets to that point where it's, you know, you've got to pivot and drop everything you're doing, you know, right. the ship, the ship, there's a hole in the bottom of the boat and, you know, that compliance stuff right now, you're going to have to put that aside just a moment, you know, and help me put a, you know, fix this hole. Um, so we're not at that point, but, you know, with this, these surges that they're talking about, that means everybody may need to pivot. So, um, but right for right now, until it gets to that apex point and that massive surge point where it's going to be absolutely something we've never seen before in our hospital, in our system, um, then, Compliance still is pivoting, and we have to pivot to what we consider some of those different activities that we have to do. So now we have things that we have to deal with that we wouldn't normally have to deal with uh, with our regulators. We're keeping an eye on what they're telling us, what kind of waivers they're giving us, what kind of suspension of activities they're doing for their audits and compliance requirements, what new requirements we have to abide by. So you have to be able to pivot very quickly to those priorities. Um, we have to be able to communicate still with the organization. We talked about compliance being about relationships. Well, yes, the challenges of managing our team, there are challenges because we've got people working remote now and things of that nature. So, you know, where we have challenges like everyone else does of, you know, maybe you've never worked remote, so now you have to kind of manage a remote team. But even more so for our team, we can handle that. It's managing those communications and interactions and relationships now that we were used to organizationally that now have become um, different, that have changed. Right. And so, you know, so that's, those are some of the challenges we're seeing from a compliance standpoint is it's about what you need to focus on right now and pivoting to that right away. It's not about what's in the plan. I can tell you half the plan that I probably had three months ago that we presented, I'm going to end up tearing up and throwing in the trash can. Um, it's gone. It's done. We're going to have to pivot to some other things now. Well, I love that metaphor you had of kind of the hole in the ship and this picture of an organization as a ship that's really going through a storm. And, you know, a ship needs sails and you may be on the deck sort of fixing the sails or fixing the nets or whatever, but the hole in the ship is the most important thing. And your plan goes right out the window when you have to keep that ship afloat. And I just think it's such an apt uh, metaphor that you brought into this conversation. And I think it can really help you know from a thought experiment perspective really guide people's thinking as they think about that pivot as as you put it 
this is a time where, you know, to keep it going, I guess, you know, the, uh, the ocean is undulating beneath our feet and we don't know, you know, I mean, <laughs> there's rules coming out without, without the requisite guidance for us to even know how to act under those new rules. And that's happening across the board. There's these plans that we wrote two, three months ago when we were, you know, planning for this year that to your point are being shredded up and thrown out the window. And there's an interesting balance to strike, I think, between how do we keep the sort of the short-term tactical um, eyes on the prize, you know, uh, filling that hole in the ship, fixing that hole in the hull, but also keep our eyes on sort of the medium term and the longer term to see, okay, well, when we come out of this thing, what position do we need to be in to not only survive, but to thrive in the new environment, whatever that looks like? Yeah, I'd like, I'd like to, uh, to that point, I think it's a really good point, Nick. I'd like to tell you about, you know, we talked about and what can people take away from this? What you know? What do I recommend, or what do I see? What am I working on right now to kind of start to put things into perspective? And I call them the three W's. What is important right now? What is the mission critical right now? Immediately, what's important? What's important next? So as things start to ramp up again, right? We move into a different phase of this, where surges maybe, or you know, we've been through them and. We're going to try to get business uh, back to some semblance in some kind of phased approach, maybe rather than opening doors and everybody, let's go back to work, you know, kind of situation. What's that going to look like and what do we need? And then what do we need to do later? What is important later? What will we need to change? Because I will tell you that our organization, you know, being in the hospital healthcare system, we do drills. We do um pandemic drills, uh, you know, we were part of uh, the whole FEMA system, response system, and things of that nature. And so, you know, you think that you've thought of everything, and we know, you know, we can look at this now and say, I can tell you some things that are the lessons learned from this. So, but I think the, the three steps right now is that everybody should make a list of what do we need to do now, what's next, and what's going to be important later after that. And you can make those lists right now and to help guide you through this. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I love, I love the framework. And I would just encourage people to write them in pencil because <laughs> we don't know how, how it will change. But I mean, continuing to acclimate toward that North Star or continuing to say, okay, well, again, what, you know, short, medium, and long term, those things might keep changing. But the more we can revisit those, and the, it, it helps guide our kind of day-by-day -day act, act activities and also helps kind of keep our eyes up from just staring down at the road at, as we're walking. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. Because, you know, when you're in a crisis like this, you know, there are things that, you know, uh, even the best planning. So let's say, you know, we have a plan every year that we put some, you know, put things down that are, these are mission critical things, no matter what it is that we do, we have to do right? As a compliance department, we have to check these things, make sure they're operating effectively. And we're doing our reportings that we have to do in all of our relationships with our regulators. We're following the rules. Those are things we absolutely have to do. Then we have those initiatives and things that we are going to want to commence or start as part of maybe process improvement. So those are things that we may have to delay or even set aside or pivot away from now. So it is about that prioritization is what is important to you now. And I think a lot of people that are sitting at home now, maybe working remotely or living in a bubble, right? You're working in a bubble. And so you are measuring right now, what is important to you in your life and in your job and in your work. And you're measuring that 
organizations need to do that same kind of look and look at it almost as if you're in a bubble and say, what is important to us as an organization if, if all else fails? Because we've seen um, the type of kind of, you know, I'm not going to get into the politics of it, but what I would say is not what I learned is the support system uh, when it comes to emergency management uh, from our federal government. Um, as you know, whether you want to call it delay or not enough, I'm not going to get into those things, but I think organizations have needed to learn that they need to see what it would take if they have to actually be on their own and you, there is no help coming like you're on your own. So, and I think if you look at it from start at that starting point, um, then you can start to build what you need. So for example, our organization, we've always, you know, worked on this as a region or with the fact that we're gonna have state assistance or federal assistance in an emergency situation. And so now I'm gonna think about this as taking this back to our emergency preparedness and continuity teams and say, you know what? We learned a lesson here saying, what happens if help is not coming? Right. What is our plan? What's our supply chain? What is our plan for, for doing anything if the help is not coming or it's going to be slow? And even though we have contingency plans for those things this is like the hundred year flood that you're not keeping right. warehouses full of n95 masks just in case right yeah right so you know so that's that's where i think some of these you know there's going to be some hard conversations of what we think we might need to do differently yeah i think that's such a great framework it is it's like true worst case scenario planning, which, you know, <laughs> to your point, sometimes you're in a bubble and you're like, okay, yeah, we've thought of everything. And then that hundred year flood comes and you're like, oh, we forgot about sandbags or whatever, right? So this is really forcing us to entertain some things that I think six months ago, we would have never even, you know, in our sort of worst case scenario, uh, you know, planning, thought experiments, whatever, uh, there's some rocks that we wouldn't have looked under that we'll definitely be looking under and digging under now. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, there's a, there's a big human impact, you know, from this, you know, that, you know, you kind of don't consider of then, you know, we, we all talked about, it. I think every, every organization planned to some extent that, you know, technology may be down or, you know, uh, there might be some business interruptions. So then you may have remote people working. So they, you know, maybe increase their VPN capacities. So in case that happened, but nobody really thought about the human impact and in the fear and the desperation, you know, that people have, you know, in these kind of situations where, you know, it's about safety, it's about health. I mean, we have people dying. So, you know, this puts a whole new spin on things. And so what I think important at this time, too, is that compliance needs to still lead the way as that ethical and as that kind of uh, sure-footed leadership that it should have. Like, we're not loosening the rules on the code of conduct. You know, um, the code still stands. Um, but, but I think that leaders now, whether it's compliance or otherwise, I think they should be following what I call the three T's. Be truthful, be transparent, and think on your feet. You have to be able to do all of those things because when people are fearful, when people are desperate, whether it's our employees, our patients, uh, whoever it is, and for, you know, for other organizations, your customers, um, they want to be able to know where things stand. They want to hear the real message. They want to be the truth to be told to them. And I think people can begin to absorb that and understand that and um, feel like they can get some control over it 
it's that fear of not being in control and not knowing that I think puts everybody in a panic. And then that can cause situations at organizations um, that, you know, people are now involved in doing activities they've never done before because they're scared, right? So they're, they're, they're fearful of, you know, this situation. So I think it's, you have to have those things. You have to have good communications. You have to have transparency, truth, and leaders need to think on their feet. You know, this is about pivoting. This isn't about what the plan was or, you know, but you do have to stay the course on some things. Yeah. And that gets back to, you know, kind of to draw a parallel to that, that DOJ framework, you have to kind of prioritize the greatest risks. You have to prioritize the most important sort of tasks you had planned. Um, Something you said that I thought was really interesting was that, you know, and I think this is what you were saying, but in a lot of our sort of contingency planning and worst case scenario planning and emergency planning, we're thinking about those, those, those three items you mentioned earlier, the people, the process, and the technology. And I think, at least in my experience, a lot of the thoughts around people is really this sort of cold, um, like labor unit kind of mentality. When to your point, what this thing has brought up, this crisis has brought up is really the human element of, I mean, it seems so apparent now, obviously, but the human element of that people, you know, leg on the stool and how are people sort of feeling through this process and how are, how's people's men- mental health through this process and the fear aspect of it. Um, and that lead that, that leads so well into your three, you know, your, your three T's piece. And, um, I think it was just really astute observation and comment and perspective that compliance can really lead the way here because it is really the junction of a lot of these things, this risk piece, this people piece, this relationship piece, um, this prioritization piece. Um, and there's a real opportunity in this, I think in this crisis for, for compliance to step up. If I can just add one piece to this, to the three T's is that I think you're right, we gotta be able to think on our feet and I think we have to be truthful. And that transparency piece is also, you know, we're allowed to be vulnerable in that as leaders, whether you're a leader of a team, whether you're a leader of an entire organization. And part of that transparency is talking about, hey, I'm, I don't know, or hey, this is our framework for trying to attack this thing and we're taking it day by day and things like that. I think there's a certain appreciation that a team will feel for that level of truth to kind of, you know, round that out. Um, that in the past, you know, I think people were sort of scared to bring bring to bear in you know the public setting of you know the face that they're bringing to their team. Yeah, I agree. I think I think the most success, and, and I can only say, you know, I'm only saying from experience. It's like it'll be nice to have all these lessons right before we went into this, but uh, we're learning lessons from this. And the lesson is that I think that people are more comfortable with, and we see. Um, uh, people understanding more about things if you're transparent with them and show that vulnerability. Like you said, I think you aptly put that, that we don't have all the answers, but we're thinking on our feet and we're trying to make the good decisions along the way. And this is what we're deciding right now. And then if some people say, you know, wouldn't this be better? Or how about this? Or how about this scenario? Have you guys thought of like if this scenario happens, if you are you addressing this, then you get that feedback and then you can start addressing some of the things that maybe you didn't think of. So you're, you're thinking of almost of it in a way as a community rather than just a couple of people making a decision and saying, this is an edict and a mandate. Yeah. And I think in today's sort of flatter organizations where it's more, it's more about knowledge work and it's less about this old world, you know, militaristic um, mentality, that level of vulnerability. And really we're talking about respect um, is it's the, the mortar between the bricks of the wall of the organization, or it's the, it's the grease in the engine 
of, of, of that organization. And I think during this time, we're going to see a lot of where an organization actually places that respect. Is it real? Is it not? Are they going to live out that level of, uh, of care? Or is it really just going to be something that's on their website? This is a, there's, there's just a big opportunity for it right now, I think. Huge. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, um, I, I like, you know, I, I listen to people different. Everybody's got different opinions on things. And so I hear a lot of this kind of this phrase that, you know, when we return uh, to normal, right. Or when, when things get back to the way they were and um, you know, my opinion, my, our environment has permanently changed now. This is, this is not going to be the last pandemic too. And we're, we're kind of lucky. I, I hate to say, try to, find silver linings or anything like that. I mean, I want to be positive for people, but I, I'm a truth sayer. So that's my job. Right. So is to tell the truth is that we kind of lucky that this isn't something where you get it. Um, any age you are, um, you bet, you know, it's a 50, 50 chance where right. you're going to make it. So we're seeing that there is some trending as to some reasons why certain people are, having uh, poorer outcomes than others, right? You're, you're, you may be older, you may have a pre-existing condition, but we're still seeing it affect, um, you know, at least test from a positive testing standpoint, every age group from zero to 100 right. uh, can test positive for this. They just may not have symptoms. They may be asymptomatic. And then we're also seeing everybody from age 30 on up uh, could potentially be hospitalized and have, need some kind of acute care for this. Right. Uh, where the people that are having the obviously poor outcomes, we see that at the higher ages. But think of a situation in whether in which this would be a highly communicable, communicable, um, you know, virus, which this is extremely. I mean, we haven't seen this kind of kind of spread, um, you know, since like the smallpox and other things that just spread like wildfire. Right. And it would be just absolutely, you know deadly if you got it uh, imagine the the impact we would be looking at now based on some of the impreparedness in some of the way that we responded you know to this so we have to get ready for that scenario now in case we have it in the future so um you know we're going to see mutations we're going to see different viruses so this is not the end of it we're not returning to normal uh then there's going to be a new normal from this even if we get to the apex of this we're going to have to learn how to, especially let's say our hospital, use our hospital system or healthcare system in general. This isn't over in like June. Like right. we're still going to be seeing cases and we may see a resurgence in the fall until there is a treatment and until there's a vaccine for this, you know, um, you know, from my standpoint is we're not, you know, we're not going to be able to kind of let our guard down. So everybody shouldn't just start flocking back in a, you know, movie theaters until we get some good direction from, you know, the CDC and our, and our governors and things like that. So listen to those things, you know, when you're, when you're listening to what to do, but I think we're going to have to learn how to live in this world where there are these viruses now and you can become ill and maybe some people become more ill than others, but it doesn't mean that we don't have a, an effect on each other, you know, uh, and be able to carry it to someone else. So, we really have to think about how interconnected we are. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I, I really couldn't have said that any better myself, although I'll try right now. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's not a new norm, or it, it's not going to quote unquote get back to normal. Um, if you have kids, right, after you have a kid, um, it doesn't get back to normal like, like it was before you had kids. You acclimate to that new 
to that new normal, to that new reality, but it's never, it's never the old way. And, you know, that's fine. And you just, you make those adjustments and you just keep moving forward. But I think if we're holding on to the thought that, man, this is, uh, you know, as soon as we get out out of the woods, everything's going to be how it was. I think a lot of people are going to be up for a, a rude awakening. And it's not to be negative. It's not to be pessimistic. I think it's to be realistic. And I think there's, once we can hold on to that, to that likely reality, we can begin to sort of plan for it and begin to find opportunities and how we can thrive in it. Yeah, I think that was very well said, Nick. I mean, we all have an effect on each other. So even if, you know, there's you know a lot of folks out there that some are taking this very, very, very seriously. Some are even taking it to the level of being, you know, um, kind of very so fearful about it that there, it's kind of a phobia, right, of even walking outside the home, you know, and so uh, that don't even want to be outside, you know, on your back porch breathing the air. I mean, there's people that take it to that level, and there's, and there's people that are just like, well, you know, it's it's not really affecting my age group, so you know, I'm kind of going to go about my business. And you know, it's interesting to see how it's it's you know being handled across the country. Some states are been really serious from the beginning about kind of this stay in place, stay at home, uh, watch this, and then other other areas are been a bit more lax about it. And it's kind of like we're all interconnected, so you know, we've all got to do this together. Otherwise. You know, we're not going to get through it. We're going to keep seeing this resurge and come back. And so, you know, we see that sitting at home now, right? So, you know, we're not seeing maybe our relatives or friends because we're trying to be really vigilant about this. We don't want to visit our grandparents and things of that nature. And so we see how interconnected we are as, as, a, as a society that it's, we've got to think about our fellow, you know, man and um, what impact we have and the impact on everything. Yeah, because it is all interdependent. It is this, um, it's, we're not a bunch of silos. We're not, we're not a bunch of islands. We're, we're an, an interconnected people. And I think this is really showing that. Um, let me ask you. Yeah. I was just going to say, um, as we kind of wrap up here, if there's someone listening to this, who's in an organization that, you know, they're more pigeonholed or they're more, um, you know, they're, they're really trying to battle this crisis. What's your kind of parting piece of advice for them? What's, what's, what's a parting thing that you can leave them with that they can sort of put into action today or put into action tomorrow to, to make their world a better place? Well, I, you know, I think that um, whatever area that you're in right now, um, you have to look at things in two ways. You know, one is on your department level, you know, and to do an assessment of, you know, take an inventory of what you were going to do this year, what you need to pivot to do. And like we said, the three W's, what's important now, what's important next later. So that's something you can be doing from that standpoint. Uh, then from an organizational standpoint, I think that um, in organizations where um, it's, it's necessary to reach out, I would be reaching out and saying, how can we be helpful to you? Because whether you're from audit or compliance or risk, Whatever area or you're in, you're providing some kind of benefit or service to that organization. How can you be providing that maybe on a different way or a different level during this time and offering that, not waiting for somebody to reach out? So in the healthcare, you know, system and hospital system here, you know, that's not really, you know, necessary. We don't have to keep emailing people saying, well, what can I do? Um, You know, there's a lot that we're doing to ensure that we're following the rules and, informing people of new guidelines, new things that are coming out from, 
you know, from a clinical perspective, from a care perspective, from a coding, billing, all those things that we do in a system. So, you know, we found a way to pivot from the normal plan of what we're looking at to now what we need to be looking at that's specifically related to this pandemic and how our organization is responding. So I would encourage people to do the same. The other thing that I know that gets lost during this time is that people are not taking note of what they're doing and um, of what actions are taking around because they're too busy doing them. So later they're going to try to remember, you know, what did we do then or, you know, how did we deal with that and what the lessons learned were and what the steps were to, that they're doing to talk themselves through that. And I would encourage organizations to have some kind of a scribe, right, that's kind of keeping track of that. So for my example, uh, we do like this, you know, an annual risk assessment and a scorecard that we keep track of quarterly. And that's going to be my attempt to document some of the things that we're doing in the organization because at some later point in time, you might forget some of those details. So keep track of those things of what you're doing in response to this crisis and, and be the be a leader, you know, in whatever area you're in and figure out, right, going back to what we started with, to the beginning of the conversation, how can you be relevant and how can you be helpful to your organization right now? Yeah, I love that. I love those last two, especially be a leader. It's on, you know, we all have this mantle of, of a leader on us right now if we want to step up and take it. And there's so much, you know, to use your analogy from before, there's so much water in the ship. You know, everyone needs a bucket and everyone can make a difference by, by bailing some of that water out. And just that idea of putting down on paper or in your computer or some kind of a mechanism to track what you're doing right now along with the rationale is going to be so insightful down the road, not, not only to undo what you did that was perhaps a mistake or to really to try to, um, to codify the learnings and to really get on paper some of those, those rationales so we can see, okay, well, were those the right things? Were we looking at the right things? And how, how can we avoid sort of falling in the same pit again and again? So I just, this was really a phenomenal conversation, Mark. Um, you were really forthcoming and you just, you know, you have so much knowledge in this space. I appreciate you coming on and sharing so much of your experience and so much of your, uh, your mindset and your tips um, on how, on how you know, we can help respond to this crisis in our own little pockets of the world. Mark, how can people find you? How can they track you online and how, how can they learn more about you? Well, I'm on LinkedIn, so I think a lot of people are on LinkedIn these days, so they uh, feel free to reach out to me through LinkedIn. Um, if there's something I can do to help you answer a question, provide some advice, uh, please feel free to contact me through LinkedIn. I think is probably the best way to do that. Um, certainly, if you know, if you uh, uh, if anybody contacts you, Nick, and you want to forward them to me, and, and I wanted to say too, uh, appreciate what you're doing, uh, all the efforts that you're doing at this time, uh, putting out a lot of good content, a lot of good posts, a lot of thoughtful things out there that are, you know, hopefully going to help people. I know that you're bringing in people from different types of kind of backgrounds. Uh, to bring different perspectives. And I think uh, you're providing a very valuable service uh, to people too, to be able to talk this through and to listen to what other people are doing. Well, I appreciate you saying that. That's, that's exactly what we're trying to do. Um, we're all kind of going through this in our own way. And, you know, the more we can open up the conversation, the more, you know, diverse perspectives we can bring into the mix, the higher the odds that, you know, we'll be able to borrow something from somebody else, either for our own mentality, something that we can bring home to our families so that we're not bringing that stress home or something we can bring and put to work in our organizations to help us, you know, accelerate through this, through this uh, crisis, however long this takes. Yes, well said, well said.
Well, thank you so much, Mark. Thanks, thanks for joining us on The Ethics Experts. Appreciate your time so much and uh, have a wonderful day. Appreciate it. Stay health and safety, health and safe there out there, uh, Nick. So take care and we'll get through this. Uh, there's just going to be a lot of lessons we're going to learn from this. So it's, it's good. 